Welcome back to Norwegian On Air, this time for episode number eight. I'm Helene Løken, Head of Internal Communications. And I'm Stine Klund, Investor Relations Officer. And in this episode we are talking about stock, which is obviously critical for any airline. So let's go. In the end of the last episode that was released in June, we asked our listeners and staff to vote for the theme of this episode, and the obvious winner was slots. This is a topic that was increasingly set on the agenda after Monarch's bankruptcy in October last year, and the value of the airline slot became a substantial part of the bankruptcy estate. So for today's episode, we have brought in Norwegian's own slot expert, Sebastian Pellissier, to give us an introduction to this universe. Welcome, Sebastian. Hello. Hi, so I just wanted to start by asking, what exactly is a slot? I know it's a really dummy uh, question, and why is it so important? So it really is a, it's a question that get asked a lot. There are two types of slots. Um, for the purposes of this, we're talking about an airport slot, not an air traffic control slot. So an airport slot is, is a time on a given day of the week, um, throughout a season for a given period that gives you access to infrastructure that you require to operate your flight at an airport. So that's access to the runways to be able to land or take off, that's access to the terminals to be able to use security, to be able to use the baggage makeup system, the baggage reclaim belts, immigration, car parking, stands for your aircraft to park on, night movements if you need them. So that one little time gives you access to all of those those parts of an airport's infrastructure that you require. So to fly one flight you would need a slot pair then at, at two different airports? You would need a slot pair at two different airports and you'd probably need a slot pair at the airport that you're arriving and departing from. So one slot is an arrival or a departure. So we generally find we need two slots to operate one flight out of each airport. So a round trip from Oslo as a hub, we would need six, uh, four slots. Yeah, uh, and we mostly hear about the constrained airports. But could you please elaborate on, on uh, the three levels of airports? Yeah, so we have level one airports, which is there is suitable infrastructure to, to facilitate everyone's demands at all times. Um, these are small airports that, that that we can fly into and out of without any hassle. Um, and that would be, for example, in Norway, most airports are level level one, aren't they? In, in Norway, we find a lot of airports are level two. Okay. Actually, there are very few level one airports that, that we operate into and out of, if any mm. at all. Um, and, and the reason is that level two airports are one step up, which is there's the potential for some form of congestion over a season that could be a day of the week or a certain week exactly so if we think about um if we think about norway Mm. and a very quiet airport it may be heavily congested when it snows in the winter therefore there needs to be some form of mutually agreeable control to limit the amount of aircraft that lands just so they could be de-iced as an example so the level two airports are where there is slight congestion over certain periods but there is a mutual agreement between an airline and a schedules facilitator to work together to make sure that, that the schedules are deliverable for both airlines and airports And then there's the level three airports, which is where demand exceeds capacity and the majority of our operation tends to take place. Um, These are the big airports and sometimes the smaller airports. Um, 
We have examples of the obvious ones such as London, Oslo, JFK, Paris, but some of the smaller airports that are level three. Uh, we, we look at Warsaw as an example, it's level three predominantly because it has a problem at the night. It has a very heavily restricted night period and, and we see that with Poznan um, is level three at night time. So these are, the, these are the kind of, it doesn't have to be busy all day, it just needs to have a constraint that would need a slot. Only a level three airport has a slot. But if we look at, uh, you know, it's like a, the, those very, very popular ones uh, of the level three, the highly congested ones. So, so how are the slots allocated then? So, I mean, Norwegian as a relatively uh, new carrier compared to the, the legacy carriers. How, how are the slots allocated? So slots are allocated through an independent coordinator, um, which is is appointed by each member state each country and each airport um, there's a process which is sort of determined by IATA which is a global standard uh, which is a period of dates by which we would submit the schedules reclaim our grandfather rights um, to gain access to those airports these go in twice a year we go through these seasonal coordinations and then the slots are allocated in line with the declared capacity from the airports following a set of allocation criteria based on whether you're a new entrant to the airport so a new entrant is defined as someone that's brand new to an airport or has five or less operations in an airport are going to offer a new service to eu intrastate markets um, it can depend on whether you're trying to retime slots. You know, historic retimes will take a huge precedent. So if I wanted to move my flight from eight o'clock in the morning to seven thirty, and there's available capacity, I stand a good chance of doing that. So the process is um, transparent, and it's it's fairly clear to to see what's what's taken place. But it it happens at a slot submission. To what extent? Is slots a barrier to entry? To, how long do you keep a slot when when you got one, for you example? You keep a slot for as long as you're physically able to operate the slot. Um, so there are a set of rules around being able to operate slots, the biggest being the 80-20 rule, which is you must operate 80% of that slot that you've been allocated. If it's 20 weeks of slots, you need to operate 16 weeks in order to, to maintain that. So it's a use it or lose it principle, but, but but how often does it happen that an airline will lose their slots and, and who actually mandates that and how is it, how's the process? It, it happens more often, more often than not, and I think that, the, the, that we can ratify that by the growth that we've seen across airports. You know, if an airport is full, how do you manage to attract new carriers? How do you manage to continue to grow? How do, how do things change? And, and that churn of slots and capacity comes through failures. Um, not everything is given alleviation. Uh, if you have a very bad summer um, and it's only you that's affected, there's every chance that you could lose the historic right. Those slots would then go back into the airport slot pool and are then allocated by the independent coordinator using their list of criteria. So it's not an uncommon occurrence. And it's it's very disappointing. <laughs> and it's a transparent process. It is a transparent process, mainly because slot coordinators will release schedules after the slot coordination is complete um, and you can download those from most airports and you can actually start to make comparisons so so we we kind of look at where people were operating last year versus this year really try to understand um, what changes have taken place at an airport but we've seen a lot of cancellations in europe this summer so a cancellation would be an unuse of a, of a slot i assume Indeed. but what about the delay 
A delay of a slot is not a non-use, um, but delays can count against you in 80-20 because part of that criteria is that you operate your 80% on time. However, what we're seeing across Europe this summer has been unprecedented levels of air traffic delay, um, which we can't mitigate against and we can't plan for. If we're going to be given an air traffic control slot because of thunderstorms, because of strikes, because of overcapacity and over demand en route and at an airport, that is beyond our control. And so long as we're able to demonstrate that to the relevant coordinator and relevant governing body, we can generally claim an alleviation or force majeure from from the 8020. So going back to uh, Stina's questions about barriers to entry, because if you look at the use it or lose it principle, as, as you elaborated on, I can't see how this, you know, how, how does this position legacy carriers, uh, who've obviously been there for a long time and have been able to get the best slots compared to new entrants, how, how, how is that handled? Well, I, I think... I'd probably challenge that legacy carriers get the best, better slots than new entrants. I think in a lot of markets over the last few years, Norwegian has been a new entrant and we've grown in some of the most challenging markets and challenging airports at a, a, a great rate of knots. And we've been able to do that through the current guidelines and legislations that, that are around. And I think that when we talk about legacy carriers holding on to everything, eventually you will have a bad year. And if you can't deal with that, then then those slots will be returned to the pool and we and we stand to stand at an advantage. So I think the current guidelines are geared up to to promote competition, and and, and we've taken full advantage of those. If you think last summer at Gatwick, as an example, we had six Dreamliners, we now have eleven. So you know a lot of that has come through the current process and the churn of slots and that will be loss of historics not only by legacy carriers but by other people entering and leaving markets i think we need to remember this is a very fluid industry and as quickly as somebody will enter one destination and one market another airline legacy or not will come off of it of that market so churn doesn't necessarily have to be through 80 20 failure it can be through the removal and the change in markets we saw lufthansa remove the berlin service from JFK. So, so, so how do Norwegian then work within the system? And, and can airlines affect the allocation of slots? Because it's built on yeah, global guidelines for slots, but how can we affect So we can't affect the allocation of slots. The, 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 the system works because the allocation is carried out, the physical allocation is carried out by an independent coordinator. But airlines can affect capacity that's declared by airports by being involved in the relevant coordination committees where capacities are decided and discussed with airports whose responsibility alongside the member state it is to declare the capabilities. And airlines can also involve themselves in working groups and global bodies such as IATA to drive policy and drive change forward. So Norwegian, we we sit on IATA's SPWG, which is the slot policy working group that feeds into writing uh, and amending the worldwide scheduling and slot guidelines from from IATA. Um, We're we're not an IATA member and we've gained a place at the table, which allows us to really be involved in how global policy will be shaped, not only for us, but for everyone else and drive forward our fair competition and equal access for all. But you say global policies, uh, and as an example, I know that slots are tradable in some countries, but not in others. So to what extent are these policies really global, and how much do they differ from country to country? So so 
they're guidelines um, so they are a best practice standard they're not they're not legislated and you are right some countries allow slot trading and some countries don't that that would be whatever the national legislation takes from that and and we can't sort of change and enforce national legislation we can certainly lobby and make sure we sit on the right groups if it's something we endorse and it's something that that, that we push for we're not opposed to slot trading. In fact, we think it, it, it works quite nicely as a secondary trading market, which allow um, the, the swaps of slots between carriers. It doesn't necessarily have to be for financial gain. There's plenty of trades that take place without any money Just exchanging hands. Slots. Exactly. Slot mm-hmm. Secondary trading is a hugely important piece of how you reduce the barriers to airport access and carriers exchanging for, for and aiding each other in other airports is a great tool and, a, and, a, and has been a way that we've been able to, to gain access to markets without money changing hands. Mm. And we've seen that, for example, SAS has sold so, uh, some of their slots at Heathrow. How valuable are these slots? It's it's a bit of a it's a funny one. How how valuable is a slot? A slot mm-hmm. is as valuable as the airline is willing to pay for it, um, and and it's as simple as that. The the more scarce the capacity, the more willing people will be to pay um, huge sums of money. But you definitely see when you have a fallout in the market of a carrier, like with Monarch that Stina mentioned initially as well. I think Monarch was a bit of a Monarch was a bit of an oddball. Um, you know, we've seen many carriers over the years fail. And, and we've never been in a situation where slots have been able to be traded by a third party because the slots in the Monarch case were not traded by the airline. They were they were traded by the administrator. Yes, and I think that this actually is more to do with a loophole in definition within legislation about what an air carrier is as opposed to the value of a slot. Um, we've seen numerous occasions where airlines have failed and the slots have been returned to the pool for reallocation by the independent coordinator. Consolidation is uh, obviously a hot topic in aviation. And how does, you know, the slots play into uh, to make sure that you still have a fair competition following consolidation? So I think in, we're quite well protected in Europe. Um, we have the Competition Commission and when we see these big mergers of airlines or we see um, sort of joint ventures coming together, those pass through quite a rigorous competition commission and authority within the EU Commission. And the end result of this is usually that we would see uh, what are called remedy slots, a set of commitments that come down from the Commission stipulating that certain capacity will be released back into uh the pool under certain conditions Um, it won't be there for everyone to to get hold of what would what would happen is you would have to apply it to prove that you're a viable operator Um, we've certainly taken advantage of this if we consider our Amsterdam service this is uh, slots that we've gained access to through um, an EU commitment um, which was as a result of the joint transatlantic venture between uh, Delta KLM Air France and in that instance, we had to submit an application to the EU Commission and demonstrate that we were a viable carrier that could that could that could offer competition to the consumer on that route and demonstrate um, th- that it was possible. After that process, lengthy process, we mm. were we were deemed viable, and we as we were unable to gain any capacity through the general slot allocation process because Amsterdam is full. Uh, we were awarded slots funded by uh, KLM and Delta 
for both Amsterdam and New York. So I think there are barriers to, uh, and there are processes in place to ensure that when we see consolidation take place, that, that it doesn't necessarily close markets. Yeah. You know, that there are protections in place to ensure that, that the consumer still has fair choice and there is competition on these routes because it is all about the consumer at the end of the day. And on that theme, one last question. Uh, how do you think Brexit will affect the British slot policies and how do Norwegian prepare for that? The EU slot regulation in the UK is a statutory instrument. So at the moment, European law will all be taken into UK law and, and we will still abide by that. Of course, there's opportunity to amend the um, the slot guidelines as they currently are. And there's lots of discussion going on in the UK and there's various interest from various parties and, you know, and the Department for Transport in the UK are openly having discussions about the slot uh, the slot regulation and and is it workable especially when we consider Heathrow runway 3 bringing on significant new capacity in the UK from sort of 2026 how's norwegian preparing for it we have a great team of people yeah. looking at it we rest we, uh, yeah we we we're, we're, we're well prepared from a slot perspective we are well prepared we are a group of, we we you know with our multiple AOCs we have not only the opportunity with one common odor to move and share the capacity amongst those AOCs to ensure continuation of service and to ensure to ensure that we have continuation of access to the airports um, you know we have our european AOCs and our uk AOC as well which which stands us in good stead so from from my perspective Perspective. I don't see any drastic or radical change to slot policy or to, to the way that Norwegian will operate in the short term. Glad to hear that. Yeah, it seems like you have a lot to handle and work on, so we won't keep you anymore. But thank you very much for thank joining you. us for this episode. Thank, thank you, you for you. listening. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Yeah, and we'd like to remind you that for any constructive feedback or even proposals for topics as we are working on the next episode already, please let us know at investor.relations at norwegian.com. Perfect. And thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.